Hello and welcome to our podcast named Detours. This podcast embraces the unexpected twists and turns that shapes the journeys of our lives that God sends us down. I'm your host and fellow traveler, Mike. I'm here with my beautiful wife, Deb, and we invite you to join us on this exploration of uncharted territories we encounter along the way. So without further ado, let's dive into this episode. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is for all of you listeners out there. This is Detours. That is our podcast. My name is Mike, and I'm here with my wife, Deborah. Hi, guys. And as you well know, our guest for season number two is my father, Steve. Say hello to everybody, Dad. Hello, everybody. So we have talked through a lot of the darker side of, of losing a child, the more depressing side uh, which is the obvious uh, when you're dealing with the loss of um, a kid. And and so we wanted to take uh, an episode or two, and, and now that we've gone through it and we're years removed, we wanted to look back at that journey and just talk about the different ways that God was with us and the positive things that came out of it, whether we realized it at the moment or not, uh, some things I would say my perspective has changed uh, because I'm now, again, almost 40 years removed from this. Uh, but I think the obvious topic for today, uh, Dad, I'd love for you to tell the story of my sister. I have a little sister. She's four years younger than I am. And she's been an absolute blessing to this family, and it's an absolute miracle, her her adoption story. So do you mind starting that off for us? Sure. I would just make one comment about detours. Um, And I use a real-life situation. We were trying to find a piece of property to build a home on, and uh, somehow we got lost because of a detour. And in doing so... By total accident, we found the perfect piece of property that I still live on today. Detours don't necessarily mean that everything on the road ahead is bad news. Um, as we talked about in, I believe it was season two, or in episode number two, um, at the point that Stuart was born, we had made a decision that our family size had reached its maximum, and we had Sandra's tubes tied. Well, very quickly after Stuart passed away, between the, the two weeks between Christmas and the date, we immediately started carrying on a conversation about what are we going to do? You know, we, we said we had to have two kids, and we both agreed that we would adopt a child. That's soon after everything. Yeah. Wow. But we knew that adoptions take months and oftentimes years and may never happen. So I went over to the county and picked up the adoption papers so we could get them filled out. And, and we did. We filled everything out. And we got on the to the 1st of January, and shortly thereafter, I had to make a business trip. And as was often the case, Sandra handed me an envelope and said, here's our adoption papers. Make sure you drop these in a mailbox somewhere along the way. Oh, you got a honeydew. Did you do the honeydew? Uh, I failed. <laughs> I failed the honeydew. What can I tell you? Oh, man. So um, I stuck it in my coat pocket, made my business trip, and I had a, you know, we had a normal cadence for when I got home. When I landed at O'Hare, I always picked up the phone and called her and said, I'm here. And it's normally about an hour from O'Hare to home, so she would know if it was close to dinner time or whatever, what time I was going to arrive and when to fix dinner and so forth. So, as I always do, I picked up the phone when I got to O'Hare. In those days, we didn't have cell phones. I had to use a pay phone. And I called her and I said, hey, just want to let you know that I'm at O'Hare. And I heard a sound that I hadn't heard in a long time. And she says, we're getting a baby. Now, I freaked because I look inside my coat pocket. The papers are still there. Haven't moved from my coat pocket. I said, Sandra, that can't be possible. 
I still have the papers in my pocket. No, no, we're getting a baby. Wow. And I said, Sandra, you know. I hate to tell you this, but I never mailed it out. Well, I told her. I said, you know, I, I, I'm looking at him right here in my pocket. She said, we're not getting it through the adoption agency. She said, I went to the gynecologist t- today to get a checkup post Stuart and the, you know, the surgery and everything. And he said, there's, there's a family that has a 14-year-old girl that's pregnant. And they asked me to help them find the perfect place for that baby to go. Because they, they didn't want to do an abortion, and they wanted to make sure that there was a good family. And he said, I told them about you guys. And the parents immediately said, that's the kind of family we want our baby to go to. Well, you would have thought I'd have been jumping up and down and, and rejoicing. And the first thing I said is, I'm not sure this is legal, Sandra. I, this this could be illegal. You know, <laughs> this, this could black be a black market kid. Yeah, black market kid. And she goes... No, no, it'll be fine. It'll, I said, Sandra, yeah, don't get your hopes up too high here. This could be really difficult. So first thing the next morning, I get on the phone to our attorney, who happens to be a member of our church, and I called him up. I said, Don, I got a question for you. Told him the whole story, and he laughs, and he says, Steve, this is the most common form of adoption in the state of Illinois. It's called a private adoption. No kidding. And he said about 70% of all the adoptions in the state of Illinois are handled privately. Everything's fine. He said, what I want you to do is to give them my name. And, you know, we don't want, you know, we we don't want you guys involved directly, but give them my name and have their attorney get in touch with me. So Sandra called the doctor, said, have their attorney call Don Wilkinson. And within two or three days, sure enough, their attorney calls Don. Don calls me and goes, this is a real deal, Steve. (laughs) I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is really going to happen? He goes, well, let's not go that far yet. He said, there's a lot of, lot of things we got to go through before we get to that. And I had never even asked the question, when was the baby due, right? So I said to Sandra, I said, well, you know, what well, we have about seven or eight months to get ready for this. And she goes, oh, no, the baby's due the 1st of April. This is January. <laughs> Stuart's been gone roughly a month. Wow. And we're already making plans. We don't know if it's a boy or a girl, but, you know, we're making plans for a new baby four months in the future from when Stuart passed away. Now, I would tell you that if you don't understand what adoption processes are, we have friends that worked years to adopt a baby. We have friends that have gone to China and to Russia into foreign countries to adopt children because they couldn't find one in the U.S. And we found one that lived seven miles from us. We knew where the parents lived. We knew the town that they lived in. So all of a sudden, God miraculously creates this opportunity for us that we we don't do anything. It just fell in our lap, which makes... No sense, right? But yet, to God, this is part of that multiple layer of chess pieces that he played. So we, you know, we kind of get the room ready again to do it all over. And on the 4th of April, I get a call, and it's my attorney. He says, guess what? You're the proud papa of a baby boy. And I said, what? He goes, I was just kidding you. You're the proud papa of a girl. You said you want a girl. I said, I do want a girl. He said, yep, you got a girl. I'm like, oh, man, this is awesome. Because my family genetically just always produced boys. We didn't know what it meant to have a girl in the family. And I really wanted a girl. And so, and he knew that. I told him that at great length. And so he was obviously teasing me. So, you know, we now the tough part is waiting. The baby's been born, she's perfectly healthy, and we got to wait like three days to take possession of her. And That's Sandra, such an interesting way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Sandra and I are, Sandra's like, I just can't take this. And I said, here's what we're going to do. 
I said, we're going to go to the hospital. We know where she's born, same place that Michael was born and Stuart. And I said, they always had that window and they put all the babies in the isolates and everybody can come and look at the babies and they have the names on the, on the, the things. Well, we knew what the family's name was that was putting the baby up for adoption. They didn't know our name, but we knew theirs. Well, we go there and Margot was by far the most adorable kid in the she window. She was a gorgeous baby. I've seen pictures of when and she was little. Unbelievably cute. Sandra's niece was living with us at the time, Novella. So Novella's with us, and we're we're sitting there, and we're just all just going crazy, right? So we leave, and, we, and the deal is that we have to come back in three days. And the sad story to this whole thing is that the girl that gave up Margot for adoption gave up Margot on her 15th birthday. Mm. Um, and so, you know, that was part of the story. But so we, we, we go to the hospital to pick her up and Sandra gets to hold her for the first time. And it's love at first sight. No question about it. Was and her name Margot or did you rename her? She she had a different name and I've never told Margot what that is and okay. she doesn't want to know, so I'm not gonna say it on the podcast here, but no, she had a different name. And so our attorney says, Well, we have to serve her adoption papers. Yeah, how do you serve adoption papers to a baby? <laughs> he says, Watch this. We have a nurse there to witness it. He takes the adoption papers. And he rolls them up and he sticks them in Margot's diaper. Stop And he it. says, you've been served officially under the auspices of the state of Illinois official adoption papers. And, and so, you know, then the, the nurse signs it. And then we have to go to court. So we go to court and the process is, is pretty interesting. Both the mother and the father are minors. Margot's obviously a minor. And they appoint attorneys for all three of them. So there's an attorney for the mother, an attorney for the father, an attorney for Margot, hmm. and our attorneys. So we have four lawyers in the room, which, you know, I, I no I'm, lawyer uh, jokes. No, no lawyer <laughs> jokes. And you know, you, you know, it, this was a fairly easy one because what happens is in the state of Illinois, you take possession of the baby for six months, and the the county sends out like a social worker to check to make sure that your home is decent safe and safe and all that kind of good stuff and you're good parents and, and you don't crazy. beat her and stuff. So, you know, but this was a fairly easy deal. You know, there was nothing to it. So we take the baby home. We decide to name her Margot, and Michael once again becomes Mr. Entertainer, you know, and he's got her just cackling. She's just dying laughing at him. And she always has. You know, the, the two of them, when they get together, it's just a laugh fest. It always has been. So the first time the social worker come, they come twice. You know, we're giving Michael all the, the lowdown. Now, Michael, you have to be well-behaved. You have to do. And he did. He was He was very nicely behaved. And she was duly impressed. And... And so, who would not be impressed with this kid? <laughs> Choose your next words carefully, Dad. <laughs> he just totally hesitated. Uh, uh, yeah, and I'm not saying another word other than to say, we passed the inspection the first time. You have to go a second time. So she comes again in a couple more months, and she goes, "Okay, you guys have passed the final inspection. All right, cool. So we got to wait for our six month date because you have to be six months. The day comes around and. Don calls us up and he says, Sandra, I want you to dress Margot in the cutest dress you can find because we're going to take her up in front of the judge and I'm counting on Margot to put on a real cute show because this judge, is he, he, he loves babies. He's an older judge and I want to impress him. Oh, that was easy. Sandra finds find some cute pink frilly dress and we <laughs> dress her all up. And we get to the courthouse, and my attorney is an absolute wreck. What? He's a total wreck. And I said, what is wrong with you, Don? He goes, you can't believe how many adoptions fall out of bed at six months. Oh, nice to tell us now. And he said, people change their minds because now is the final time. And he said, things just always go wrong. 
And I'm like, Don. Instilling confidence. I I, I said to him, I said, Don, here's my answer to you. God put this whole thing together. You're a Christian. You understand this. If God wants it to happen, ain't nobody going to stop it. Well, that's the truth. So, you know, we show up there, and the judge immediately says, okay, you know, Snyder adoption, please come forward and approach the bench. So I've got Margot. She's got her pink frilly dress on. He's goo, 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 goo. He's giving her all the, the little baby talk and stuff, and he's clearly charmed, right? He said, all right, let's figure this out now. He said, uh, all right, lawyer for the, for, for the baby, what's your opinion? No objections, Your Honor. Lawyer for the mother, no objections, Your Honor. Loyal for the father, no objections, Your Honor. And he looks at Don and he says, Mr. Wilkinson, have you received legitimate sign-off? Because the parents have to sign, giving up the baby. But because they're minors, the parents of the mother the and the parents of the father have to sign. Right. Don had gone and got every single signature in person. So there was no possible slip. And he hands it to the judge, and the judge goes, well, is there anyone here that would object to me completing this adoption? Of course, no one said a word. Slams a gavel down and says, congratulations, Mr. and Mrs. Snyder. Welcome your new daughter to your home. Hmm. And that was, the, that was the end of it. You know, it, was, it, was a, it was a surreal situation, to say the least. And, you know, I would say to people that are listening to this, if you've lost a child... In no way should you interpret that God's going to just provide you a new baby to take the place of the one that you just gave up. I'm not sure why God chose to do that for us. Um, I know that it was something very special that he did for us. You know, part of what happens here is that the day the baby, I have to pay for the mother's care, all of her pre-delivery care, and then I have to take responsibility for all the hospital bills and the doctor bills while she's in the hospital. And so that was my, and I had no issue with that. And the mother's father said, listen, I have really good insurance. Let's do this. And he tells us my attorney, not to me. He said, I'll pay for everything, but I want you to take a matching amount of money, whatever I pay for things, I want you to put in a college fund for her. Wow. So we did. And how cool is that? It was very cool. The the whole way that this worked out, God had his hand on it from the beginning to the end. And, you know, it, it was one of those detours that we would never have taken had Stuart not died. Now, you know, the real battle that you have is, would you give up Margot? to get Stuart back. That's not a fair question. I, there's no way. No. Not but, a chance. There's well, a lot of things that I would give up to have Stuart. Margo's one of those that's a hard no. Yeah. Not, I, it wouldn't even cross my mind. It, I wouldn't even entertain. You couldn't get the, the period at the end of the sentence. I'd go, absolutely not. Because uh, she's mine. And, you know, the really cool thing about Margo that I just really respect her is... On a couple of occasions, we've asked her, you know, would you like to meet your mother or something? No. No, God put me in this family. This is my family. You're my mom and you're my dad, and that's the bottom line. Interestingly enough, in the state of Illinois, Margot's birth certificate says I'm the father and Sandra's the mother. Wow. If, if, if a baby's given up for adoption that quickly, we are listed on the birth certificate as the parents. Well, she was only a couple... Three days. Three days old, so so that makes sense. I'm just amazed that we're listed as the the mother and father, but neither here nor there. You know, it was so much fun to to have a girl, you know, to contrast against Michael because, you know, we didn't know what it was like to raise a girl. And fortunately, my feeling was very simple. I said, as difficult as Michael was to raise, God had to give us a girl to show us that he had compassion on us, and we could have someone that was really easy to raise. Michael was difficult to oh, raise? that's a story for another podcast. Several, oh. Maybe a season-long podcast. Wow. But I you guys are laying it on thick. I want yeah. in on that. Don't forget, I can hit the mute button on you guys Stop at any it. second. <laughs> we can end this real quick. But, 
you know, Margo was probably the easiest kid to raise. You know, I mean, she slept through the night early. She potty trained easily. She never, I, I go, we used, we love to take our kids out to dinner. We always took our kids to dinner from the time they were old enough to basically go out of the house. And they knew that they they were supposed to behave, and you know it was unacceptable to cry in a restaurant, huh. and it was unacceptable to get up and run up and down the aisles and all that kind of good stuff. And one night we were at a Chinese restaurant, and Margot decided she was going to cry, and I just took her by the hand, and I walked her out in the parking lot, and she said, "Daddy, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to cry. I won't cry again. Please take me back inside." I took her back inside. She never cried ever again. Huh. That was literally all it took was walking her by the hand out to the parking lot. Wow, she was but, but a really the, good kid. Yeah, one of the funny parts about Margot, Margot, when she cried, her tear ducts were like fountains, <laughs> and the the tears instead that. of running down her cheeks would shoot out oh. like shower jets. You know, she she was a riot to to be with as a kid, and the two of them just even to this day. You know, when they talk on the phone and stuff, they laugh and they have very similar interests. And it, what was really cool is we'd be in a restaurant and they'd be, you know, they, they both have blue eyes. And, and I, I bet five or ten times people would say, boy, you can sure tell those two are brother and sister. Uh-huh. It was as if God crafted that baby just to match what Michael. They do look alike. Yeah, I they mean, do. And when they were little, Danny. when they were really little, they looked even more alike, you know, they're, they're less like look alike today than they did then. But it, it, God just really intervened in our life and gave us something that we never bargained for. That's been just the biggest blessing that you could ever imagine. And, you know, all of the things that we went through and four months later, we went from the death of a child to the birth of a new child that we had no plan of or knew anything about on the day that Stuart died. And yet four months later, we welcome a baby into our house and you go, wow, that's a miracle folks. Yeah, she absolutely is, uh, you know, a miracle. And, and what was interesting about the whole thing is the grandparents that they came, was a Christian or Catholic background, but they knew Christ and they said we wanted, you know, part of their prerequisites was that Margot go to, you know, a, a Christian family. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it, there's there's no doubt in my mind. It, it's amazing that God had his solution in movement Long before, before, you know, before. Five months before Stuart died, Margot yeah. was already in the works. And he knew before she was born where she sure. was going. Of course. Absolutely. And yeah, that that's one of those things, you know, in the next episode, we're going to talk about uh, our role in the Ronald McDonald house and so on and so forth. And if you ask me, you know, would you give up the Ronald McDonald house for Stuart? I, I would absolutely say yes. In a heartbeat. Absolutely. I would. Absolutely. But Margot, not a chance. Yeah. That's a whole different question. And We'll talk about the Ronald McDonald House in the next episode, but that's probably one of the one of the greatest accomplishments of my life, and one that I'll always be just really attached to emotionally. Um, but Margot is in a different class completely, and you know you never think about the fact she's adopted. I I, I don't either. I have no thought about it. No, you, you know, Margot's my daughter. Period. Yeah. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, Sandra might as well have been the, the natural mother because for the time we brought her home, we never thought about, is she adopted? You know, as she was growing up, she would ask Sandra questions like, did I come out of your tummy? And Sandra would say, no, you you were delivered by angels to us. Hmm. And she was. Um, yeah, it, was <laughs> it was a pretty cool circumstance. And, you know, I look back on it now and, you know, Margo's, 39 years old, I think, 38 years old. And I don't know where all those years have gone so quickly, but, you know, it, it's it been really cool to have a kid that God, I mean, God gives us every child we have. God gave me Michael 
but God gave me Margot. It just the, the the method of delivery was a little different, but right. I love them both the same, and you know, I'm just so proud of both of them, and thankful that I got a chance to have them as a part of my life. Yeah, and um, I think that you know, in in the Book of Job. Yeah everybody it's a long book and we're going to take the same approach that most people take, which is, you know, the beginning and you know, the end, but you skip over the middle. I would highly encourage people to read the 40 plus chapters in the middle of the book of Job to understand trials fully. But the beginning of Job, he has a ton of things. It's taken from him, including his kids. And at the end he gets a double portion back. Um, And so Margot is, Portion number one, in my eyes, losing a brother, um, my double portion, Margo's the first portion, and you have mentioned on several podcasts, uh, Bob and Dawn Colts, Yep, very dear friends of the family. Dawn has uh, since passed away, but uh, is with Christ now, been solid friends. Um, they had a son that you've, I think, even made reference to that... Uh, is born 10 days before I was. Uh, give us the whole story of Bob and Dawn because they were an odd couple, like total yin and yang, but again, just so beautifully made for one another. And they've been just dear, dear friends. Uh, and and Greg couldn't be any closer if he was blood. Um, and he's the second portion for me personally. But how, how did Bob and Dawn, how did you guys get introduced to them? So... We had no children at the time, and Pastor Schmidgall came to us and said, would you guys consider being the sponsors of the college class? We talked about it and said, yeah, we would do that. So we had probably, I don't know, 20, 25 kids that were either college age or something close to that, and Bob and Dawn were each part of that group. Bob was a scientist. He worked for a company called Union Oil Products. He was extremely smart. He was a leader in the group? He was No, Bob was he he was one of the college kids. Oh, I didn't know. They're they quite were a bit younger, younger than yeah, I they're quite a bit younger than we were. Um, not quite a bit. I maybe ten years, eight years, I don't know. But no, Bob was one of the students, and so was yeah. Dawn. And Dawn, you know, you always talk about how opposites attract. <laughs> Bob was like always really kind of shy and quiet and Dawn was the ultra extrovert. I mean Boy, does that sound familiar. Yeah. Uh, Dawn Dawn and, and Bob were truly the yin and the yang that you just said and I, I'll never forget it. One time it came out that they were going out on a date and everybody in the whole group's like, Can you believe Bob and Dawn are going out on a date? That's like unbelievable. Oil yeah, Bob and water. yeah, Bob won't get a word in edgewise. <laughs> and so, sure enough, they start going together, and ultimately, they get married. And so, you know, we were, we were at their wedding and stuff, and and they moved into the town, the same town that we lived in. And they only moved maybe five minutes away from us. And so, you know, one evening we invited them over for dinner because we saw them frequently. And they walked in and, and Dawn goes, we have a surprise for you guys. Santa goes, really? What's up? We're pregnant. <laughs> and, you know, oh, congratulations. That's really great news. And Sanders says, well, we kind of wanted to tell you we have a surprise for you guys too, because Sanders pregnant. And then they start matching dates, right? And it turned out Greg was born about 10 days before Michael was. Hmm. But those two kids might as well have grown up as brothers because they they spent all kinds of hours together, hours and hours. And they they were, and to this day, still are the best friends uh, of each other. You know, they and, and now Greg lives in Colorado and Mike lives in Florida, but the distance doesn't matter. And even there was a point in time when they went away to college and they went in different directions that they hadn't seen one another. And they got back together, and it was almost like they'd seen each other two days ago and nothing changed. You know, they just picked right up where they were, and everything just continued on. 
And so it was really cool the way that whole friendship has grown. That is cool. It's a blessing to have a childhood friend. But even that, you, you sit there and you look back. Again, God knew exactly what he was doing. You know, putting Bob and Dawn together in your young young adults group at the church. He, he knew exactly what he, again, he was assembling, he was playing on that chessboard, something that you would never guess. That's right. Something that you would never understand. And yeah, Greg, Greg is someone that if, if he was blood or not, it would make no difference. We're that close. I know I can call him at any time. I know he'll he'll answer in between the screaming, pooping kids that he has now with his loving wife. <laughs> if he can break away, he'll answer, and you know we we'll pick up right where we left off. But the, those are the two major signs to me that that God was there the whole time that we were going through everything with Stuart. Is he already had the the Stuart size hole that would be left in a, in a bigger brother. He already had that filled and he had very, two very special people picked out for those roles. And I, I, I wouldn't change either one of those Margo or Greg and the role that they play in my life. Yeah. I'm sure I, there, there's part of me that misses having a, a, a brother, but I, I certainly don't spend much time meditating on it because I've got two amazing people that he's given to me as a gift. And you know, it's important now that we've that we're so far removed from Stuart that you can look back and you can go, oh man, there were blessings amongst that burden. That that's exactly how God works, and you know, I'm, I'm I consider myself very very lucky, very Blessed. lucky, yeah, to to have these two people in my life. So, um, you know, were, were there other there were other instances. I know in, in one of our previous shows, Dad, we, we talked about how we knew God was with us. Um, one of those was your answered prayer of, hey, I, I don't want to carry the burden of my the, the loss of my son. Was there anything in that that you wanted to kind of talk about or were there other examples uh, along the way? Margo and Greg are the obvious ones for me. Well, the only thing I would say to you is, in my many years of living, I've only heard the audible voice of God one time. You know, I, I suppose some people go their entire life and never hear an audible voice of God. But just for those that maybe didn't hear the previous one of the previous episodes, the night that we got home from the hospital after Stuart passed away, Sandra and I knelt in the living room, and I prayed, and I said, God, you have to lift this burden off of me because I have another son to raise and I can't go around living, you know, in the shadow of, of Stuart. You know, I've got to break out of that and give my son the same quality of life he would have gotten had Stuart been here and, and the same, you know, the same dad. And, and so, you know, you can't, you can't handicap me by helping me stay stuck in this place. And so literally just a few weeks after Stuart had passed, I was in the shower getting ready to go to work, and all of a sudden I realized that the day before, I never once thought about Stuart. And I felt so guilty. We talked about emotions on one of the episodes. That was a day that I was so guilty. I, I sobbed and I sobbed and I sobbed. And I'm just like, God, I'm such a failure as a father. And, you know, I'm mm. so embarrassed. And I'm so, you know, I, I've let my son down. And I, I just, and all of a sudden, he said, Steve, why are you crying? I answered your prayer. And he stopped me dead in my tracks. And I'm thinking, did I really hear that? But I realized, yeah, he did. You know, I thought about Stuart a lot. You know, when you lose someone, it's, it's common. You think about him all day long. And for me to go a whole day without thinking about him, that was a big deal. 
Especially that close to the past. Yeah, I mean, we weren't that far far beyond it. And that's what was so troubling to me was how could I totally have forgotten my son in this circumstance? And then God spoke to me, and it was like, wow. Powerful. Turned me upside down at that point. And then, I, I mean, at that point, you know, God's in this, and he's got control, and that... You know, sometimes you doubt that. You say, oh, God, are you sure you know what you're doing here? And all of a sudden, he does something like that, or he does something like Margot, and you go, wow, you really are the God of everything. You, you, you had this all figured out long ago, and you did hear my prayer. You know, the night that, that I was praying about Stuart's dialysis to start working, and he gave me that scripture. He just said, I want you to open your Bible. And I opened it to the book of Isaiah, and it said, there will be streams in the desert. That's the only words I read in that whole verse, because I knew instantly he was telling me that he was making the dialysis start to work. Hmm. Now, you know, I asked myself questions. God if you made the streams in the desert start to flow and you made it such that Stuart, you know, was going to go down to the regular type room the next day, why did you still do what you did? And I've, you know, I, I guess I've come to that conclusion that God had to say, had to show me in some tangible way that he was involved in everything, but that he was still the Lord and you know, he didn't take Stuart to spite me. Right. That was that was never the case. You know, I you hear people say, "What did I?" You know, I'm a, I've heard people say, "Wow, that he must be a terrible father," or you know, they, "What what sin did his father commit that they took his son away from him?" Stuff like that. And there's no relationship to my sin and Stuart. He doesn't penalize me for that. He. He, he's totally independent in his thinking. And I just know that he was in all of this. And, he, you know, he probably showed himself many more times than I knew because maybe I was too busy worrying or being noisy and praying and not listening. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about that too. And you can't hear him if you're not, you, you can't hear God speak because a lot of times it's a whisper. It's, just, it's so many times. You do not want God using his outside voice. Let's put it that way. You, you want it to be a whisper. And, you know, so many times, Deb, the, the last episode of season number one is our story of how we found one another. And, and we were single for so long. Yeah. And we had both gone through tremendous trials. And what's amazing to me is the, the same the same trend that I noticed with you and I getting together is the same trend that I noticed with Margot, where you're put through tremendous trials. And when you honor God through those trials and you enter into a, a blessed season, it happens so quickly. When God flips the switch from test to blessing, hmm. It's a wave of blessing very, very quickly. That is true. When, in, when in you our and I, experience. Yeah, with, with you and I, the, the, the second time when we got back together for good, we had finished the trial. We had honored God through the whole thing. And, I mean, when, when we got back together the second time, <laughs> you, me, and God were moving with a purpose because there was no doubt in our mind that we were meant to be together um, and he put us together for a reason. And it's incredible that Margo's the same thing. You had just finished this gut-wrenching trial. And God said, you know what, Steve, Sandra, you've honored me. And so now I'm going to start to show you all the pieces that I was moving when you had no idea I was moving pieces. And I'm now going to bless you. And I would describe, if I had to use one word to describe both Margot and Greg, it would be an absolute blessing to our family. For sure. The Colts family and Margot have just been an absolute blessing from 
day number one for me all the way through to today. But I think that, that that's so common when you, when you see trials with God, it it often gets you know darkness is is darkest just before the dawn. It often, Deb, you came and told me that you were moving up to to Cape Canaveral because you had gotten a job from NASA. And I was there in Fort Lauderdale. That, to me, was as dark as our trial was going to get because the woman I was told I was going to be getting married to is now moving away. And I had no answers, but, you know, I tried to take a a page out of David's book and go worship. And, you know, that that, I I look at that worship uh, in the darkness as what God was waiting for from me before he hit that switch and blessing. I would tell you, I think at that point, because I was pretty involved during this time as well, um, I was worried about you. We talked, I don't know about every night, but a lot. And there were many nights that it was all tears. You know, you you were so upset. And um, there was one night that I was praying and, and I was angry with God. I was like, God, this just isn't fair. This kid's gone through so much, and it's just not fair. You know, come on, meet him just partway even. And, you know, I remember when you called me when you first met Deborah, and you met her at some kind of a connection group at church, and you said to me, I'm going to go fast and pray because I think I like her, but I'm not going to make a mistake here, and I'm going to see if, what God says. And you felt very strongly that God said, yeah. And you started dating, and then all of a sudden, God said, not so fast. <laughs> and on this one particular occasion, when I was praying for you, God said to me, Steve, I will bring these two together. That's, that's definitely the plan. But neither of them are ready for this relationship. They each have growing that they both need to do to make this relationship work. And he was right. And he was right. If you look at what needed to be finished on you, I can't speak for Deborah because I really didn't know her very well. I met her once at that point. But I knew what needed to be done for you. And, you know, one of the things that, that we, you and I talked about many times was you needed to learn patience. And God's like, Michael, you're going to get patience if I have to break you in half to get it. And he did teach you patience. And I was so impressed through it when you finally came to grips with, even though I don't know that you really believed me when I said, God told me you guys are going to be together. But when he finally told you, then all of a sudden everything changed because you had made up your mind. I know God's in control of this thing and I'm not going to and I remember he called me, Deborah. You'll never, you'll, you'll never forget this. He called me and he goes, Deborah called me and invited me up to Cape Canaveral. Should I go? Hmm? And I'm like, do you really ask that question? He goes, Well, I'm going, but I thought I'd ask you if I, it was the right <laughs> thing to do. And I, I said, You need to go. Yes, of course. Yep. And I knew when he called me and told me that. I said, It's going to happen now. And you know, as he's coming home, he's calling me going, you aren't going to believe the weekend we had. We had just the most incredible weekend. And, oh, man, yeah, this is awesome. And, and, you know, all I could think about were all the times when we prayed together or I prayed for him and stuff. And, you know, God had a plan. Another story where God had a plan, but it's not necessarily about Margot. But so Michael was working at a place, and it was right close to Calvary. And everything was, seemed to be going pretty well. And he calls me, he goes, you aren't going to believe this. I just got fired or laid off. And he, you'd only been there a short time. I don't remember exactly what the time frame was. Yeah, two or three months, maybe, something yeah. like that. It wasn't long. And, and he's really upset, and he's heading home. And I said, well, call me when you get home. So I start praying. And God says to me, Steve, I want you to go to the Calvary Chapel website, and I want you to go to the job section. So I'm sitting at my computer at home, and the very first job listed 
was a digital marketing manager for the church. <laughs> so he calls me when he gets home, and I said, you have a job, son. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, once you go to the Calvary Church or Calvary Chapel website, holy cow, I, this is like the perfect job for me. I said, yeah, told you. God had that. It, but what was interesting was he told me at one point, because he had a number of jobs. He, he couldn't, couldn't keep a job for very long. What he told me was after he got that job, he said, you know what, Dad? If I hadn't worked all those different jobs, I wouldn't have had all the skill set that I needed to do this job. I needed a little from each of those jobs to put them all together to How be able cool to do what I'm that? doing here. That's God. That's, you know, whether you're going through a rough time in your life or not, just take time to let God work things out because he generally has a plan. You just don't know what it is, and you can get impatient, and you can think, everything's impossible and all that kind of good stuff. And guess what? It was totally possible. Yeah. And my career prior to that job was working for Accenture and I, I worked in the Oracle marketing cloud division of Accenture and, and got to go work at just some absolutely amazing places. I worked for Disney out in Pasadena. I worked for uh, Sheeney airport in Singapore. I worked for, Scott trade. I worked for Twitter. I, I mean, I worked for a lot of different things. And yeah, as, as I look back, Accenture, the, you know, the only reason Twitter called us, the only reason Disney called us is because they had a problem in their digital marketing that they didn't know how to fix. They just knew they had a problem. And so they would call Accenture. Accenture is the largest, I believe, the largest agency in the world. And so it was my job to go in, figure out what was wrong and propose a roadmap of how to correct it. And if they wanted, I would stay behind and help them implement what our recommendation was. And it was amazing because I walked into Calvary Chapel and I'm interviewing with this, this lady. She was brand new to, to Calvary, still there to this day. And I admire her tremendously. Her name is Katie. And, and Katie walks into the interview and she's totally disheveled and, and, she, she walked in late to the interview, and she, she just kind of plops her stuff down on the table. And I, I just go, Katie, are, are you okay? And, and she go, she, she kind of draws on a piece of paper all these, all these problems she's having. She slides it over to me, and she goes, Mike, this is what I'm dealing with. This is your first interview? Yeah. I, I, yeah, I believe this is the first time I met Katie. Wow. And she slides the piece of paper over to me, and I just look at it. I'm like... Okay, you should have seen the problems we dealt with at Scott Trade, being a financial institution that's backed by the government. You should have seen the problems I dealt with there. I can do this in my sleep, Katie. And I said, "Don't worry about that. How are you doing? Because you look like, you know, you look like you just got done wrestling an alligator or something here." And is that what you said? I, I don't remember exactly, but it was something along those lines. I'm like, "Are, are you okay?" It was okay. definitely along those lines. And, and it really was, I look back now and I just go, God was, my time at Accenture was nothing but problem solving. In, in the church world, let's face it, it, it's not known for digital. It's really not. Church marketing is typically 10 to 15 years behind at minimum what the rest of the world is. It's heavy on print. It, it doesn't have much personalization. It, it really is behind. And... Yeah, God was moving those pieces to get me there, and he landed me there about a year before COVID, and during that year, I had rearranged the foundation of their digital landscape alongside with Katie and this other guy, Mike. We had rearranged that, and it was almost perfect, the timing that our, our rearranging of, the, of everything digital had, had wrapped up, and COVID hit, and we were so much more nimble as a church because of the changes that we had made where before it would have felt like we were drowning when COVID hit and everything switched to digital where really we were quite under control and quite comfortable. Yeah, there was a lot of pressure there, mm -hmm. but no, nothing that I, nothing that kept me up at night. And our church, I was very proud of our church, the way that we handled COVID. A lot of churches did less because they weren't ready 
And we did a lot more because we were ready. And, and you know. God set that piece in motion beforehand. And he goes before us. Don't I remember that Katie said something to you about, I've been praying for you for five and a half months or something like that, that she, she'd been praying for the right person. And I, as I recall, she had interviewed a lot of other people, but they didn't have the the skill set, the foundation that you had. But I thought she said, I've been praying for you. And I thought it was like five and a half months, three and a half months. I don't remember. Yeah. I don't remember that. That was, you know, now we're, we're looking at almost, I've been there five years. So I don't remember that detail, but you know, again, looking back at, at all these different areas of my life, certainly starting with Stuart, putting Greg in place, the stories and, and the testimony that is Deb and I, our story, along with getting me over to Calvary Chapel, um, and even just the team that he equipped me with at Calvary Chapel. They're, my team is amazing over there. Um, but you just, you've, I've learned, okay, he, he really does have this. He really is leaving 99 and going after one, and that's what happened with Stuart, is he's chasing after, whether it was doctors or nurses or somebody, and, you know, he, he called Stuart home, but I, I, I know there's a lot of that equation that I don't see, but I know enough of the equation that I don't have to question him anymore. Nope. Not at all, but... Um, I think, you know, I think that, you know, hopefully this is, this episode is, is a positive outlook uh, for people that when you're going through these kinds of trials, honor God through the whole thing, honor him in every way and, and he'll honor you in return. And I think that's a great segue to the next episode and episode number six, we're going to tell numerous miraculous stories of us getting involved, particularly you, Dad, in the Ronald McDonald House. And you have, I've often heard you say something along the lines, and, and I'm paraphrasing out of old memories, so correct me here, but you basically, your message to a lot of people is take the energy that you would have spent on that child and, and put it into something positive. And that's what you did with the Ronald McDonald House. Do you think most people know what the Ronald McDonald House is? Uh, hopefully, um, but we'll we'll unpack all of that in the next episode. Um, but it, yeah. The, the but I think you know. I think Deb, you're probably right. For those that don't know about Ronald McDonald houses, they're Ronald McDonald houses are typically um, built close to a major children's hospital, and the purpose of it is to provide a place for the family to live while they have a sick child in the hospital. You know, I told the story of the waiting room at Loyola where they smoked cigarettes and, and that was all acceptable. And you'd leave there at the end of the day and your eyes were burning and your clothes smelled of tobacco and stuff. And people were there with their small children because they didn't know where else to take them, right? And the Ronald McDonald House it was, was the answer to that problem. It was... How do we take people out of this horrible environment and put them in a place where they can feel comfortable? And, and so we build a house. We, we equip it with everything you can imagine. You know, there's bedrooms and all that, like a, you know, almost like a hotel would have, but nice ones. There's kitchens where they can prepare dinner for their family. There's living room with pianos and video games and toy rooms and everything to make them as comfortable as they can make it. And we would charge $5 a night if they could afford it. If they can't afford it, they were able to stay for free. And what an incredible, incredible thing to do. It is. And, and you look at it, you know, if, if my memory is correct, and it could be a little bit off now, I think we've had over 100,000 nights of guests in that house. Since it's been... Since it was built wow. in, I think, 1995, or Michael said he thought it was 93 or 94. But no matter, right. in, in the time that it's been up, we've had over 100,000 guest nights. And I've spent lots of hours. Oh, I, I, a heartbroken story just to kind of put a bow on things before we really reveal the whole story. But 
Every year we do a Christmas party at the Ronald McDonald House, and we invite all the families that have lived there in the past. Everybody's welcome to come. And this, this was probably four or five years ago. And I went to the party, and there was a small boy. I would guess he was maybe five or six. And he had all his brothers and sisters there. And there was a there was a bunch of them. There were like four or five young children. The one little sister was maybe four. He had been burned from head to toe. Mm. His grand he was at his grandmother's house, and the furnace blew up. It, she lived in like a one room flat that had a furnace kind of in the living room, and yeah. the furnace blew up and burned this young boy. Oh. And he was burned from head to toe. And here it was, Christmas, and he was in the hospital, but they persuaded the doctors to let him come to the Ronald McDonald House Christmas party. So Aww. he was there, and I saw him, and I went over and I started talking to him. And his sister was sitting there with him, and I said, do you like it here? I, I, I just started asking basic questions because I, I really wanted to get it from the kid. You know, what do you think? And, oh, he's he's just like, you know, that's really cool. We have video games and all this. <laughs> and his little sister says to me, you want me to take you on a tour? Aww. I said, would you do that for me? She goes, come on, I'll show you. And she took me through the whole house. And it was the <laughs> sweetest thing you've ever seen. And I said, look at what this has done just for this family. Yeah. And if, if we only had touched that one family, it would still be important enough. But there were lots of others. That's awesome. And once again... This was part of the detour that God said, you know what, it's not all bad. But I think as we examine the whole next episode, the biggest challenge is how do you take something so tragic as the death of a child and why you can't offset it and come up with something equal? What can you do to bring honor to the loved one that you lost and do something positive so that you can focus on good things rather than just sitting around feeling sorry for yourself. And in my case, that was, that was the story because it was a, it was a major project. We started, you know, in, in, I think three years before we actually started construction, we started raising money because the, the idea we had was a $4 million house. And in those days, a $4 million house was hard to come by. And, Contrary to what people thought, McDonald's doesn't pay for those. You have to raise the money yourself. Why does it get the name Ronald McDonald? Because the local McDonald operators, the, the owners that had McDonald's stores in Chicago and northwest Indiana, all contribute to the, the building of the, the thing, but they only cover a portion okay. of the money. But they sit on the, they have people that are part of the board of directors. Um, now, Things have changed now, thanks to COVID and a lot of other things. They they don't have that individual identity they used to have, but nonetheless, McDonald's plays a big part in it, and they pay all of the salaries of all of the employees. So they're, when you give a donation to the Ronald McDonald House, it goes to the house oh, and the children. That's good to know. So we'll talk more about that in our next episode. Yeah, but that's just another amazing way that God showed up um, to, to cement Stewart's legacy, uh, yep. very cool aspect of our lives. So uh, we will save that. We will bring, be back here for episode, I believe we're on number six next time. Uh, and that's where we're going to introduce you guys to our story and our history with the Ronald McDonald House. And as I mentioned, uh, just cementing Stewart's legacy there at, at Loyola University in Chicago. And uh, it's a wonderful story. So Thank you guys for joining us for this episode. Margo, Greg, love you guys. You're awesome. Uh, thank you for being part of this story. Uh, hopefully we didn't embarrass you too much, but you guys are awesome. Um, Deb, always so much fun. I love this. Yeah, you get to know me on a level that, that even I don't know sometimes. Well, that, I get to crack on you through your dad, so Oh, that's my gosh. Great. I got I to gotta figure out how to use these mute buttons on the soundboard better. Stop it. Uh, but, Dad, I'd love to have you back on the next episode if you're going to hang out. It would be out. my pleasure. So uh, thank you guys for coming and hanging out with us. We will be back in the next episode to go over the Ronald McDonald House and the Snyder's involvement in that. 
We will see you then. Thank Take you, care. guys. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thanks for listening to Detours. For more content, you can find us on Spirit FM Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Play, or on our website at detours.life. To view my writings or to contact me for public speaking engagements, visit my website at debmarsalisi.com. Thank you.